0: So it was Cinco de Mayo this past Wednesday, and my wife and I decided that we would go out to eat at a local favorite Mexican restaurant of ours, which was interesting because the year prior, we, had, uh, we were in the middle of, of everything going crazy with COVID, and our Cinco de Mayo experience was very different. Instead, last year, when Cinco de Mayo happened, I found myself... Waiting 45 minutes in line to get my pickup order um, for the Mexican food that I had ordered. And this time when my wife and I went out for Cinco de Mayo, um, we tried to get there as early as possible. So I got off work at 4.30 and we were in the restaurant before 5. And when I got there before 5, we were able to sit down. But everything was full. It was absolutely overflowing with people. They had set up tents outside and everybody was, you know, enjoying a good day. The weather was nice. The the margaritas were flowing. The carnitas were popping. And everybody was just having a good time. And it dawned on me uh, when I went out for uh, Cinco de Mayo. The apocalypse, the little mini apocalypse that we've had for the past year, it's over. (laughs) Well, sort of. But I can't help getting this feeling in my, my spirit when I think about these things that, you know, we've really come a long way in the past year as we've dealt with COVID and all that has happened. And in today's podcast, episode 109, I want to talk about life after our mini apocalypse, what it's going to be like post-COVID Um, If we can even say such a thing. But uh, before we do, I want to play this little track from R.E.M. I believe I played this previously on another podcast. I can't remember. But I'm going to play this little track from R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, Just to kind of give us a little fuel of inspiration for today's podcast. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplanes. So it's kind of like the song says, there's a very real sense in which all that has happened in the past year has happened, and we feel fine. The apocalypse, that little mini apocalypse, at least the thing closest to an apocalypse that has ever happened in my lifetime, um, turned out to be a little less wild than Mad Max and the Thunderdome, or The Book of Eli, or you know all these other post-apocalyptic movies would have had us to believe uh, things were a little bit more tame. And depending on who you are, you've probably actually done pretty well over the past year, unless, of course, you got sick or lost a family member. Um, but if you, if you haven't, if you didn't lose anybody um, over the past year as a result of COVID, um, you could probably sit there and say, you know, my life is probably better than it was before COVID started out. And that's certainly the case with me and my wife. You know, I can sit there and look at this past year and be like, you know, there were a lot of challenges this past year, a lot of concerns. Um, but uh, over the past year, and I had not only maintained my job, but I took a new one making more money. Um, my wife and I, you know, made some other progress and a lot of different things in our life. And... You know, it's almost like uh, the apocalypse didn't happen. In fact, at one point, we had joined a cheese of the month club, Uh, you know, during the midst of all this. There's a local cheese shop in uh, Matthews, North Carolina, The Loyalist, shout out to The Loyalist, and they have a cheese of the month club, and my wife and I, we love our cheeses, we we love some stinky cheeses, Uh, and we joined the cheese of the month club briefly for a short period of time during the midst of all that was going on. And I sit there and th- and, I, and I, I remember even commenting to the, the, the shop owner who owns it. I was like, you know, Chris, hey, like, thanks for keeping us supplied with lots of stinky cheeses during the midst of all this turmoil. Um, of course, I know it's not been that way for everybody. Um, there are some people who suffered severe loss this past year. There have been people who not only suffered severe medical issues as a result of COVID. I know several people who were very, 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 very sick. Um, some who even had to be hospitalized and some who are still suffering from long-haul COVID-like symptoms. Um, and uh, I didn't know anybody that personally died. But, you know, fact remains that uh, at the time of the recording of this podcast, about 600,000 people in America alone died because of COVID. Um, and that's a great tragedy. This year has been an interesting year, not only because of COVID, but all that transpired during the past year because of COVID. We also, we had all the issues associated with COVID and, and lockdowns and businesses closing and people losing their jobs and means of supporting themselves. You know, there's a huge... Backlog of foreclosures and and people who will eventually be evicted because of their failure to pay rent as a result of all that has happened in the past year. Um, and you had restaurants closed, people lose their jobs. Um, a lot of people suffered financially, especially those on the lower end of the, the totem pole um, when it comes to um, economic well-being and, and mobility. Um, but you also had the social unrest that we had this past year with... With race issues taking a, a huge uh, stage in the middle of last summer, um, and then you had all the turmoil that happened with the election—not only leading up to the election, but all the fallout that happened associated with the election and the allegations of fraud and and um, and all that happened under uh, you know Trump and 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 what happened at the Capitol on January sixth. It's been a tough year on many levels. Some of us have. Like I said, done very well. Some of our lives are better for it. I, I, and I'm not alone in that. But there was, we, I don't think that we can make light of the fact that even though for many of us that we're probably doing better, you know, there's still a very real sense in which we didn't. Um, and I know there's been lots of talk about uh, life post-COVID, especially now that a vaccine has come out. And at the timing of this podcast, I believe about 100 million Americans have at least received One dose of the vaccine, and um, you know, that's making definite signs of progress in regard to that. And and it feels like, hey, the vaccine's here, lots of people are getting vaccinated, things are looking bright, you know, restrictions are starting to lift up, you know, sporting events are starting to allow people to come back, churches are starting to get back, uh, people are dining out at restaurants on Cinco de Mayo, um, and just a lot of good things are happening. And in many ways, it almost feels like the apocalypse of the past year. It's gone full cycle and it's over. But there's still some lingering concerns. There's still some things I think we need to be, you know, on guard about. Like, for example, the fact that even though a lot of people have gotten their vaccine um, for COVID, you know, the the trend right now is downward um, from the 3 million people a day, to about 2.5 million people a day who are getting vaccinated. So, you know, we we face the risk that we won't obtain herd immunity. And even though COVID numbers are dramatically down, they don't continue to decline here in America. They've kind of flatlined. And if you were to look at the numbers at the time of this podcast, um, you would find that the numbers that we currently have right now with people who are actively getting COVID on a day-to-day basis and as well as people who are continuing to die, reflect numbers that are still very similar to what we were experiencing at the end of last summer when it came to COVID. So we're experiencing still about like 50 or 60,000 people who are getting COVID every day and about six or 700 people who are dying daily from COVID. And then you have the issues of, of what's happening around the globe in regard to COVID, Um, Even though a lot of European and developed nations like like America and other places are doing well in stamping out COVID and getting their populations vaccinated to some degree, um, you have dramatic spikes in places like India, places like India, which are seeing over 400,000 new cases a day and uh, thousands upon thousands of people dying every single day because of COVID. And there's a very real sense that they may not have it under control in India. And that things may be actually getting worse in that part of the world. And that the fallout that could happen associated with things getting worse, worse in that part of the world. Not only in regard to people who live and die over there as a result of COVID. Um, but uh, the problems that could create when it comes to jobs and things that are produced in India. Tech support uh, and all the jobs and things that we've outsourced to India over the years. You know, There's a very real sense in which we could see some dramatic blowback that affects us over here on the other side of the world as a result of things possibly locking down India again um, until they figure out a way to get COVID under control. Um, and there could be a ripple effect from that. And we're not quite sure what that's going to look like. And, and, you know, there's also the concern that as, as COVID continues to thrive over in places like India, that that could create new variants of the, uh, the virus that are all of a sudden um, resistant to uh, the vaccine. And that could create problems for us yet again. Uh, so we don't quite know how things are going to end. And even though it feels a very real sense of which things are getting better, I think we need to be cautious. We need to be cautious about the idea um, that things are just automatically going to get better and that we're going to live in a world post-COVID because the fact of the matter is, even though things seem to be getting better in many ways for a lot of people um, in America and Europe and other developed countries, um, there's a very real sense in which this virus is still wreaking havoc around the world. And we don't know what the end of that is going to be like. So in some sense, we we need to we need to check our privilege when it comes to uh, you know dealing with COVID um, because we have been very privileged. We've been privileged to be able to you know do amazingly well with the vaccine rollout and to get things better than I think any of us could have possibly imagined. Um, but there's a very real sense in which I think we still need to be cautiously optimistic about the future, although the future does seem to be getting brighter, and in in light of the future seeming to get a little bit brighter, even though we might all have some cautious, optimistic reservations about the future, you know, there's a very real sense in which we're wanting to now start to return to uh, life pre-pandemic, in which we can get back to the way things used to be um, prior to the pandemic um, and the way things were before. However, I was recently listening to a podcast done by two pastors called Matt and Kevin Talk Church, and they made a great point that I think we need to really consider when it talks about, you know, getting back to normal. Um, and, and they, they kind of cautioned, Matt and Kevin kind of cautioned about this in their podcast, and I'll link to it in the show notes at jimmystable.com if you want to check out their podcast, Matt and Kevin Talk Church. Um, but they talk about how, you know, we can't simply just go back to the old normal um, when it comes to life pre-pandemic, um, because there's a very real sense in which the genie can't be put back in the bottle. Uh, the toothpaste can't be put back in the toothpaste container. There's a, there's a very real sense in which there is a door we can't unshut uh, when it comes to COVID. And they make a great point about how, you know, we have to own up to the fact that this past year, whatever this past year has been for you as an individual, The fact of the matter is that there's been a collective, national, global trauma that the world has experienced. And you can't just undo trauma. Um, If you lose somebody dramatically in your life or if you suddenly go broke or you suddenly have a medical issue that, you know, suddenly hits you um, and a traumatic thing happens in your life or you witness an act of violence or have an act of violence committed against you and you experience some sort of trauma, there's a very real sense that we can't just brush that off and act like none of this ever happened. The fact of the matter is COVID did happen, and people's lives have been greatly affected by it. And even if your life, you know maybe turned out better as a result of covid there's still a very real sense in which you know we were all huddled down in our homes for at least a pretty good solid month there in which we all of a suddenly found ourselves living in a very different world that was different than the world we used to live in um and it's and it's an event that will continue to haunt us the rest of our lives it'll influence the way we think about people it'll influence the way we think about politics it'll influence the way we think about church, it'll influence the, the, the way we deal with school, it'll influence the way we deal with work, it'll, and there's just so many different areas that this ultimately will influence. Um, and it's not just something we can just sweep back under the proverbial rug. Uh, life is going to be different post-COVID, um, and while there's very much a real sense in which things will continue on as they were before, um, as I talked about on prior podcasts, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, there's a very real sense in which there's nothing new under the sun. We aren't the first, uh, country nation in the world or people group to experience, um, a horrible disease that just ravaged the world. Um, and But in the midst of all that, there's a very real sense in which the sun still rose every day, um, the birds still went out, we still had beautiful weather, um, and things like seed time and harvest continue regardless of of what happens in the world. But even with that said, I think it needs to be acknowledged we have experienced a collective trauma, and it's not a trauma that's going to be easily forgotten anytime soon. It'll be something that continues uh, to to haunt us in some way for years and decades to come. And one day when I'm an old man, and 50 or 60 years, although you might argue, hey, at 38 years old, aren't you kind of <laughs> an old man? Um, but, uh, you know, there's a very real sense 50 or 60 years from now, I'm still going to be stuck with the thoughts of things that transpired during this time and how they ended up um, impacting and changing the world uh, and how maybe it even changed me. Um, so in today's podcast, uh, with all that said, you know, I'm, I just want to talk about some observations that I've made about what I've seen with COVID over the past year um, and which I believe a cultural shift has happened. Um, and it's something that we're going to be recognize, you know, reckoning with for, for years to come. Um, and just some trends that I've noticed and, uh, you know, I've just been contemplating what sort of changes we might expect. Um, and, uh, you know, the trends of the things I see. So first thing I want to talk about is, um, let's talk about work. You know, this, this past year, many of us started working from home, but, and there's a very real sense in which that's going to be a permanent thing for many of us. However, there are individuals like the CEO of uh, Chase, uh, Jamie Dimon, who's like, you know, they're old school boomers, if you will, uh, (laughs) who insist that, you know, we need to end this work from home stuff uh, and that people need to get their butts back in the office. Um, And, uh, you know, there's going to be a challenge to this entire work from home thing. I think in the end. Uh, the market will win out and that you'll still find that there's a lot of jobs that can still be done remotely and that people prefer to do remotely um, and that they will be permanently such. There will you know, continue to be tens of millions of jobs that you know, continue to exist on a full-time remote basis. However, there are individuals like CEO Jamie Diamond who are going to insist that they have butts in seats those seats are in buildings with their names on it um, because there's just something about the old school mentality and old guard mentality of individuals like Jamie Dimon who don't feel secure in their job as CEO or executive or mid-level manager unless they can see a butt in a seat and that seat being a building with their name on it. Um, they're, they're just incredibly insecure individuals who need that. Um, and don't get me wrong. There's there's a very real sense in which I believe there are good things about working in an office environment, but I think a lot of those things are overrated. And the truth of the matter is, we can do just as well for I think a lot of jobs, uh, and like jobs like mine. I'm 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 an underwriter at a, a bank, um, and you know there's a very real sense in which I never need to see anybody <laughs> to do my job. In fact, I can probably do more at work, and do a better job, the less I see of other people. Uh, In fact, I recently took a a job promotion in which my job is 100% remote, um, and I hardly talk to anybody that I work with. I just get to focus on work and churning out loans and underwriting mortgages and helping people obtain their financial dreams. Um, But if I were having to go into the office and do that, man, that would really stink, and I hope I never have to do that again. That's not to say I don't miss... Some of the camaraderie that I used to have working in the office. Um, that's not to say I don't miss uh, lunch with friends and coffee with friends and things like that um, when it when it comes to work. I, I definitely miss some of that face-to-face interaction. But there's a really real sense that as, as, as nice as that was, those were all just distractions. And that I'm far more productive at home uh, churning out loans for the bank that I work for now um, versus... Uh, being in the office in which I get to uh, yell over at some of my friends in the cubicle row next to me. And I don't miss the cubicle factory that I used to work in. (laughs) I don't miss the dim, poor lighting. I don't miss the elevators. I don't miss the parking. I don't miss the commute. I don't miss any of those things. And even though I do miss a little of the camaraderie um, that I did experience, you know, some of which I uh, benefited from, personally and financially, um, and professionally, you know, there are some things in which I'm just more than happy to say, you know, I don't go to work for the social jollies and those things are just distractions from me being the productive person that I can be. And then if I want the social jollies, I have other means of obtaining them. And I'm more than happy to be divorced from having to make nice and play politics with people that I just can't wait to get away from once the The clock strikes four o'clock or 430 in my case. Uh, (laughs) So, um, you know, I think work is going to be different, though. I think we're going to continue to see it. We're going to see the tension between old school and new school. But I think increasingly new school is going to win out. And a lot of people are um, going to see that working from home continues to be advantageous. And I think dinosaurs like Jamie Dimon just need to retire and be forced out of their jobs because, let's be real, he probably spends most of his time on a conference call with people in other states and cities that he doesn't even see anyway. So why the heck does he need to have his butt in an office uh, to do that? I know I had a job previously in which, uh, you know, I didn't actually work directly with anybody at the building I worked with, Uh, worked at, instead all my people that I worked with or were in Minneapolis and I never got to have face to face with them. Everything happened over a conference call, training and all that stuff, uh, collaborating with work. So I didn't get to benefit from it. So there's a, you know, there's a very real sense that no matter where you work, you're going to be working at somewhere that you're going to spend a lot of time on a conference call with people you never see. So why not just let it all happen at home? (laughs) But there's probably some people who need to go back into the office and I understand that, but. I think the trend is going to be, there's going to be a struggle. You're going to see some, you know, old school folks who want to go back into the office. Um, but I think that trend is going to continue to be challenged. Next, school. I think school is going to be different for a lot of people. Not only when it comes to, um, pre-college, you know, K through 12 education. Uh, but I think it's going to, uh, you're going to see a lot of shift to online college for a lot of people. Um, and I, I predict that you know, a lot of pre-college uh, schools that do K-12 education, they're probably going to have permanent work, uh, remote academies for, for students to allow children to more or less be homeschooled. And that's going to be a viable option that a lot of parents, not everybody, there's still going to be a lot of kids going to school, don't get me wrong. But I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a small percentage in a lot of different counties all over the country, um, especially in areas that are a little bit more affluent like where I live. But I think there's going to be a very real sense in which a lot of parents continue to have the quasi little homeschool sort of thing and where they opt to have permanent remote academies in which their children are educated. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, some children have medical issues that that you know, going to physical school is difficult for them. There are students with special needs who who would benefit from working from doing their schoolwork from home. Um, and then there's going to be some people who just want to have their kids at home because you know maybe they're not very good socially, uh, and they they but they and they want the sense of homeschool. And the parents don't want to have to send their kid off on a bus every day. And maybe you know the you know there's just going to be a lot of unique family situations which in which parents are going to find themselves increasingly demand um, that their kids have the option to learn remotely. And there's some students who have actually proven that they not only uh, do well, but even thrive in remote situations. And I know my wife, uh, who's an educator, has told me about this. And there's some students who are just absolutely knocking it out of the park when it comes to um, remote academy type stuff. And of course, there's many who definitely would benefit from hands-on, instructional, in-class, in-person education, and and you're going to definitely see a lot of return to that, but there's going to be a little cult of people who are going to insist that their children be educated remotely, Uh, and I think you're going to see that especially, uh, you know, go all the way up through college, um, and people are going to realize, I didn't really need to be at UNC Chapel Hill (laughs) I didn't really need to be in person at Harvard I didn't need to really be in person at these places and you're going to see more and more people if not getting their education and 100% remotely uh, assuming that's allowed um, by the the various schools but you're going to at least see a lot of students if they don't do 100% remote in college you're going to see a lot of students who definitely take some classes increasingly uh, remotely of course There's always going to be science-based classes that require hands-on, in-person instruction. Um, You know, you can't exactly do chemistry experiments uh, (laughs) remotely. Um, But, uh, you know, for people who are like studying history or, you know, studying theology and things of that nature, um, I think you're going to see an increasing demand for people who want to just do school remotely. Next is the issue of church. Let's face it, this past year has been terrible for the church. Um, And now that we're starting to come back from COVID, we're starting to see people return to church. But at least in the circles I run in and some, you know, putting my ear down to the ground um, and trying to keep uh, a pulse on things like that, Um, especially since I'm very involved in the life of the church. I think you're going to increasingly see thinner crowds at most churches especially since a lot of churches did step up and ha- offer an online presence um, during COVID. Uh, and, and in doing so, they permanently created an online campuses and online pastors and things like that. And increasingly, that's going to create uh, people who, you know, don't mind bedside Baptist on Sunday mornings, that they can sleep in on Sunday morning, you know, kind of ease their way into the day and watch a sermon and watch some singing And then go about their daily lives. Um, So there's going to be a lot of that for sure. I know, you know, my wife and I, we've started going back to church um, in person, but uh, it's kind of been a blend. Um, Some of it's been due to concerns over COVID and crowding issues and stuff, even though we recently got fully vaccinated. Um, But some of it's also been just, you know, taking advantage of the fact that for the past year uh, We've watched church online, and so now it doesn't see, seem like such a hard-pressing issue to actually physically show up. And that's a challenge for me, because especially as somebody who's been to Bible college and seminary, um, you know, I definitely feel that as as it, all the advantages that online church can offer, <laughs> that there's still no substitute for gathering physically together with other saints. There's definitely a different dynamic at play. There's an opportunity to, for, for fellowship and socializing um, that you just aren't ever going to get um, by doing church online. And of course, not to mention the celebrating of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, things that, you know, I, I did an online uh, communion or two with, through my church the, the past year. Um, but, uh, you know, I will say it's a bit different uh, celebrating communion um, via video feed versus being able to do such in the presence of others, to sing with others, to worship with others, to read the, the scripture together with others, um, to, to embrace another brother or sister, to be able to talk to them, to see how their life is going. Um, so even though I think church crowds are going to be thinner um, post-COVID, um, I think uh, you know, online church is definitely going to be a thing that you see thriving a little bit. And I'm, But, you know, all this has me concerned that people aren't exactly rushing back because I remember the popular memes that were out a year ago when people were like, oh, man, once COVID is over, I'm going to, you know, this is what going to ch- back to church is going to be like. And they had, like, Chris Farley stumbling into the Academy Awards and doing backflips down the aisle and, and people being all excited and everything. And the truth of the matter, that's, that's not been the experience. That's not what people have been doing. Um, instead... People have kind of been, you know, dipping their toes in the water with church. And I think there's a very real sense in which church has all of a sudden people have realized that maybe it's something they don't want or need in their lives. And maybe a lot of people feel disappointed or hurt over the past year, not only in how the church responded um, to um, COVID, but how they responded to uh, the social unrest we had with um, the race issues last summer and as well as issues, you know, centered around the election. Um, you know, I think there's a very real sense in which people became disenfranchised from the church because they didn't like how the church responded. And that is whether the church responded too conservatively or too liberally. Um, you know, it, it be, church became a very divided place with... And, I, and I, my heart goes out to all the pastors who had to navigate this stuff because you had pastors who were saying... You know, they were getting dirty emails about how they didn't respond well enough to COVID, or that, that they responded too strongly, or that they didn't respond strong enough to the, the racial unrest that we had in the country, or, or that they responded too strongly to it. And, and the same with the election. We, we, we became a very polarized society in this past year, and the church was not spared from that polarization. The church was not spared from the sifting that happened. Um, socially, as as our country and people started dealing with a lot of these issues, because we just simply were not on the same page when it came to COVID, when it came to the racial issues, and when it came to the election. We proved to be a very divided country, and that division is something that's been palpable. People have lost, and yours and truly, you know, I, I lost friends this past year over issues related to the social unrest and things that we were experiencing As a country long-term friends and I know I wasn't the only one to experience that and a lot of people, you know Having these issues from the past year thought, you know That that only happened within individual relationships But it happened with relationships that we had with our larger church family um, And the institutions of the church and religion and all that fun stuff um, and so I think many folks really feel disappointed on both sides of the aisle Um, about how the church responded. And there's not only that disappointment, but there's a very real sense in which some people feel like the church just outright failed them. Um, And that's something that we as a church are going to have to, I think, deal with um, in the times to come. Because there are some people who, you know, are going to just, those other issues became more important to them than um, being able to gather corporately uh, and collectively with others, in the church and they just became red hot issues that people aren't going to get over anytime soon um so that's going to be a challenge we face at the church and you know my experience so far with it is i feel like the numbers have definitely thinned out at i'm not in charge at my church but i definitely feel there's a very real sense in which the numbers have thinned out um where i'm at and uh I, I'm concerned. I'm concerned of how that's going to impact us as a church. I think, um, you know, as Matt and Kevin talked about in their podcast, you know, this is, this is going to be a new opportunity for the church to figure out new things and how to respond to people and how to deal and minister with people who are facing these situations, who are experiencing the fallout of uh, the past year. And, you know, that may change the approaches that, we do with ministry and that we're not going to be able to do what we were doing prior to the pandemic. Cuz the world's changed. Um and even though the gospel hasn't changed, um there's a very real sense though in which the context in which we are having to minister that gospel has changed. Um and if people all of a sudden see little to no value in institutions like the church and um that's going to that's going to create some problems as we attempt to gather together in the name of Jesus, to worship, to share, and uh, the ordinances that Jesus passed on to the apostles, uh, and to pass the faith down uh, once and for all to the saints. That's going to create challenges, um, and challenges that I don't think we can simply ignore and dismiss and just say, okay, let's go back to doing church the way we were doing it pre-pandemic, um, because the fact of the matter is we've experienced a collective trauma. A trauma that will not easily just be shaken off um, and something we're going to be dealing with for a long time. So let's talk about how this everything's changed politically. Well, if anything, people decided Donald Trump had to go. <laughs> and whether you believe the election was stolen or not, I'm not even going to dip my toe into that. Hint: it wasn't stolen. But anyway, I digress. Um... You know, I think politically we are very divided, more so than we have been in a very long time. Um, but it's interesting that um, the political division that we've experienced over the past year has has had less to do with policy issues and more to deal um, with in regard to personality. And it's not only been about personality issues, but it's also been about hot-button culture war issues. And I think... The only thing policy-wise that we can expect to see in the next few years, um, in the immediate future, is that both Republicans and Democrats both believe that the only objective of, of things to do politically is to spend money and to spend it like drunken fools. Um, there's a very real sense in which I think both parties, but more so maybe perhaps uh, amongst Republicans, in which... Ideology is not the driving factor anymore. Um, but it's it's personality and it's culture war issues. Um, and I think the divisions we're gonna continue to see are gonna continue to focus around gonna continue to focus around um, personality and culture war issues. Because the fact of the matter remains, Donald Trump might be gone, but he's still here. <laughs> And there's going to still be a lot of Republicans that are easily swayed into, you know, Trump stuff. And there's going to still be a lot of Democrats who are going to be associated with very everything but Trump stuff. Um, But along the way, we're going to spend a lot of money. Democrats want to spend a lot of money. And and while they talk a a game about wanting to tax the rich in order to pay for it, it... The truth of the matter is they have no interest in figuring out how to balance the budget. They're going to spend whether they tax the rich or not. I think the entire tax the rich thing is just a scam and it's just a culture war issue uh, because there's no interest among Democrats of balancing the budget um, because if it was, they wouldn't keep proposing multi-trillion dollar spending packages um, if it was about being fiscally responsible. And of course, Republicans, they don't really have too much to say about fiscal responsibility because they proved... Uh, to allow Donald Trump to spend freely when he was president and to run trillion-dollar deficits. Um, so even though the, the Dems want to spend a lot more than the Republicans do, there's definitely no way anybody on either side can agree to pump the brakes. And frankly, none of the politicians are interested in pumping the brakes when it comes to spending. They got elected so that they could spend money. The only question is, who are they going to spend it on? The question is not, are we going to spend all this money that we don't have this question simply is, who are going to spend it on? Um, and that has less to do with, you know, policy genius-related issues and more about who are our friends and what are the hot-button issues that we can, you know, use to stoke the fires with so that we can just continue to spend money on the things we want to spend money on anyway. But anyway, I digress. That's, that's my take on politics. Um, so I think we're going to continue to be divided. I think we're going to continue um, to... Be divided less around political ideology. I know people are going to say, "Oh, you're a communist or you're a capital- capitalist," and but those are just going to be a continuation of the culture war games. Uh, the truth of the matter is, nobody out there, or very few, uh, are communist. Bernie Sanders still is, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, very few are actual communists. If you actually look up the word of communism and understand what that means, um, but neither exactly are the Republicans. You know, free market capitalists, they just, they, they want the government heavily involved in regulating things. They just want to regulate different things and to spend money on different things. Um, they, they're very much as interested in the Democrats are as having government funded, sponsored and regulated entities out there. Um, it's just a question of who they're going to regulate and who they're going to spend money on because um, that's what they got elected to do to begin with, Right. Next, I want to talk about restaurants. You know, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was wanting to learn to make bread and learning to make uh, bread requires yeast. And there was a yeast shortage. Um, As a result, um, truth of the matter is, as much fun as people had at the beginning of the pandemic learning to cook, uh, I think a lot of people realized that they're still not very good at cooking. And in spite of my wife having... Uh, my wife and I have an excellent cooking channel show, Jimmy and Megan's Kitchen, on YouTube. Look it up if you want. Um, you know, uh, people st- prefer to eat out at the end of the day. And at the beginning of the pandemic, this was a problem because restaurants were facing shutdowns. And they were still learning the and, and a lot of restaurants went out of business because they couldn't figure out the online game. Um, but eventually, everybody figured out the online game. And everybody figured out how to use DoorDash for the most part and and delivery services like uh, DoorDash, um, like Uber Eats and stuff. Um, But eventually we found ourselves starting to hit the order button on our phone a lot more. And I think people got tired of uh, making sourdough bread at home. Um, And I think people got tired of cooking at home. They still like eating out. And even though I think there's still going to be some... Hesitation amongst people to return to going out to eat at restaurants Um, I think people are still going to be using DoorDash and things like that a lot Um, and this is going to revolutionize people's eating habits no longer are you restricted to getting takeout from uh, Pizza Hut and Domino's and your local Chinese restaurant but now you can get takeout from virtually anywhere you can get takeout from Five Guys McDonald's Wendy's uh and a million other places you know i can't count the number of times i've had chick-fil-a delivered to my house over the past year or bojangles and and things of that nature and i think that's a trend that's going to continue uh will people be going back to restaurants yes like i said it was absolutely packed at the restaurant we went to this this past week for a cinco de mayo um but i think there's going to be a very real sense in which people like man i don't want to wait in those lines who wants to wait 45 minutes or an hour for steak at Longhorn or, or, you know, all those places when you could just go ahead and get it delivered? Um, you know, my wife and I have a, a standing rule. No more than half an hour wait at any restaurant we go to and whatever we can. We try to make reservations uh, for where we go to. Otherwise, we opt to eat out. Um, and I think that's going to be something we continue to see. Um, Especially as restaurants continue to adapt to the larger and larger number of people that are eating out. They're going to probably all, almost start preferring people to do that. And although I know things like DoorDash you know, are difficult services that um, you know can create some hardship for restaurants. People are going to eventually figure out the formula. Uh, and people are going to figure out a way to make money off of all that. Some people have. Um, so it may mean changing some business models when it comes to restaurants and you might have restaurants less and less having, a, a you know, walk-in storefront presence or if they do a smaller one and more and more of them are going to probably start catering to online demands. I mean, I, I've already read things like Chipotle and places like that, um, who have started building, uh, second kitchens and their restaurants that can purely deal with, um, the delivery crowd. Or how even some restaurants are even opting for just commercial kitchens where they have no physical store presence that you can just walk up and get food or sit down at. But more and more they're finding themselves set up in places like business parks just so that they can have a commercial kitchen somewhere and they just churn out delivery orders all day long. So you're going to see stuff like that. And it's going to change the way we eat. Um, And that may be a good thing or a bad thing depending on your perspective. Um, I know I'm personally excited to start going back to restaurants, especially now that my wife and I that were fully vaccinated. Um, but you know, there's, there's kind of a sense of which, "Ah, I don't want to go sit at a restaurant. I don't want to be waited on. I just, I just want to eat. Um, and I think you're going to see more and more people eating out. And finally, personal relationships. This past year, They've changed. This past year caused some serious fractures among folks, friends, and family. Um, Like I said, it's impacted the way uh, we do work. It's impacted our church. It's impacted our education systems. Um, It's impacted our personal relationships. Like I said, and I know I'm not alone in this, but this past year has been very stressful for personal relationships. Um, We experienced a true social upheaval and I don't think that social upheaval is quite soaked in fully yet. It's not quite baked in fully into the equation. I think there's still a lot of hurt out there. I think there's still a lot of uh, personal trauma that people have experienced with fallouts from their relationships, from longtime friends and family. Um, and we're kind of, I think, a little bit more skittish about being around other people because we realize people suck. <laughs> <laughs> that's not to say I don't love people I do, I, lo- I, love, I love people with the love of Jesus, but we realize there's some people that we want to love with the love of Jesus from afar um, and uh, that, that we just have a hard time being around um, and th- I think there was a great revelation this past year of where a lot of people were in their hearts and that a lot of people were not the people that we thought they were And the stresses of the the trying times of this past year and this little mini apocalypse that we've had has definitely tested the social fabric of which our country is made up of. And I think a lot of personal relationships have been damaged. Um, And then not to mention now that there's a lot of streaming entertainment options out there that a lot of people dialed up for. And not to mention now you can get takeout food from anywhere. Um, And you can work remotely and you can go to school remotely. I think a lot of these things are going to continue to put pressure on our social relationships with other individuals. And I think there's going to be a very real sense in which a lot of us, even though we have the option now, uh, as COVID restrictions are lifted, as people get vaccinated, I think there's a very real sense in which a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people, are going to find themselves increasingly isolated because the past year has been truly damaging to a lot of people's relationships. And I think our society is going to be increasingly fragmented, increasingly uh, polarized, increasingly radicalized, Um, especially as people kind of become more and more loners and individuals who are on their own and who keep smaller social circles in which they regularly um, participate in. Um, people will become increasingly alone. And even though this will probably eventually cause people to eventually start forming new social circles, there's a very real sense in which when you start unplugging from the social circles you were already in, and those social circles being essential to you know, society, whether it's work, church, school, what have you, um, there's going to be a very real sense in which I think it's going to be very difficult to form those new social circles because the the places we normally formed them previously just aren't places that we're being involved with anymore. I think that's going to create a challenge. And it's going to be a challenge that I think we're not going to see the true ramifications of for probably for several years, maybe even a decade or two before the real... Impact of what we've experienced this past year socially starts to truly bear fruit What it will be like I'm not quite sure I remain cautiously optimistic But I know my world's been shaken up. I know my world has changed um, and I'm, I'm interested as an observer to see where that goes so everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 109, in which I have talked about life after our little mini apocalypse post-COVID. Not quite sure that we're post-COVID yet. We're getting there, and it looks like things may be improving, but I still think there are some things we are ultimately going to have to work through, and there are some challenges that we're going to face as a society, as a people, as a culture, that uh, we're going to have to just... Explore these things and see what happens. And I think we're going to have to start being very much more intentional about what we do um, in our social interactions with others. Everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, Jimmy's Table.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you have, be sure to email me, Jimmy at Jimmy's Table.com. Leave a five-star review at places that you can leave five-star reviews at, like Apple. Uh, You can subscribe to this podcast by going to Jimmy'sTable.com slash subscribe. And you can pick your favorite way to subscribe. Bless God, there's more than one. You can do that through Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google. uh, Or you can, if you're old school, uh, you can even sign up for email. Occasionally get people who do that, which is kind of interesting. I don't personally sign up for too much by email. Um, Occasionally I do. But uh, hey, knock yourself out if you're old school like that. So everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Take care, God bless, and have a good one. Again, this has been Jimmy Humphrey with Jimmy's Table.com. That's all I have to say about that. That's the right on, man. You said it all.